This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, and with me as my co-host is Hannah Levitt. On this episode, we're going to continue our exploration of eugenics. In our first episode, we heard from some women with regard to their personal experiences. We're going to continue in this episode with learning more about the science and the social impact. So Hannah, who have we got online for today? Hi, David. Today, we're going to talk to Brian Moore, who's experienced some poor treatment by the medical system in terms of having children and parenting. So I'm Brian Moore. I am one of the latter generation of what they call ROP kids. Uh, They used to call it RLF. So I was born premature. I was 14 weeks early and was in an incubator and and the oxygen in that incubator deprived, screwed up my retinas, which is a, a fairly common story among blind people. So essentially I've been totally blind since birth. I currently work for TD Bank as a, well, kind of an interim manager of digital accessibility. So ensuring that our websites and apps, both employee and customer facing, are accessible. So when you and your wife decided to have a family, Brian, did you have any special considerations, like in your own minds, about possibly having anything congenital? With um, No, so we actually were both blind both from the same thing, both from being premature, which is not a hereditary condition. Now, we did do screening for other genetic conditions, but that was more, not so much about our blindness, more about age, right? Because we were older and, you know, I was 39 and she was 42 when he was born, when our son was born. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in a prenatal class? Absolutely. Um, So I was a first-time parent. My partner at the time was not. She had had two children before, so had a fair bit of experience. But we decided that we should go to the prenatal class because it might be useful. And we signed up. And that, that was all fine. Um, but when we got there, the registered nurse who was running it came right out and said, how come I have to have these people in my class? Did she say that directly to you or, or what, did she well, have a she co-worker with speaking, her? She wasn't speaking to us. She was speaking to someone else. Okay. But we were standing right there. And then throughout the half-day class made no attempt during the exercises to accommodate us. And it, I mean, quite honestly, it was a waste of money because there was no attempt to make it accommodating. It was a pretty useless exercise. I mean, there was a bunch of theory, but could have read that from a book. Not to exaggerate, but it was probably one of my worst experiences with 
discrimination and sort of stereotypes that I've encountered in my life. So thanks, Brian, for sharing that story with us. It's really quite surprising that these kind of stories persist in our community today. With us today to talk about the science of genetics, we have Dr. Sukai. So Mahadio, can you give us a bit of a background on your credentials and what you're doing at this time? Sure, of course, David. Um, so my name is Dr. Mahadio Sukai. I have a PhD in uh, genetics from the University of Toronto. And for a number of years, I have been in academic research and academic teaching. And although I started in the field of, of genetics specifically, I've, I've since moved into what we call population data science and public health research. So Mahadio, when did eugenics actually begin as a science? I, I don't think eugenics has ever really been classified as a real science. Eugenics as a concept really started to come about in the latter decade, like the 1890s of the 19th century. And it really came from two places. One of those two places, of course, was Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and the idea that species could change over time and that traits in species could be selected for or selected against. The other place that gave rise to the concepts behind eugenics was the very, very embryonic field of genetics. That's a real science which really started to come into its own in the 1870s with a bunch of experiments that were done by Gregor Mendel, who was actually a monk. Um, and, and he was very interested in, in understanding how traits in pea plants were inherited one generation to the next. And so Darwin had, had sort of put together the idea that species could change over time. And then Mendel um, took the first step along a road that, that ultimately led to understanding how species could change over time. And, and so, so those two concepts came together in the idea of, um, of eugenics, which, which very simply put, um, was this whole notion of being able to direct the future of human evolution. And so, so you can direct the future of human evolution in two ways. One way by selectively breeding for certain traits. And the second way was by selectively breeding out certain traits. And so, so eugenics as this pseudo discipline sort of just evolved in the 1890s. And, and, and I mean, we, we see and experience a lot of this in the context of animal husbandry today in the context of horticulture and agriculture today. And, and so, so the, the whole concept of selective breeding had been applied for, for generations. And eugenics took that concept and said, well, why don't we actually try to apply it to humans? Because surely that would actually make a lot of sense. Um, and so, so that, was, that was the early 1900s. So when did the, the science or the practice of eugenics move out and affect the human population, especially to the point of... Uh, trying to eradicate disability? So that's a good question. And there, there'd, been, um, there'd been a lot of fascination with the idea of, of selective human breeding, um, as I said, in, in the 1890s and early 1900s. It, it became a bit of a scientific fad, I think is the way I would put it over. And remember, the theoretical foundation for all of this just didn't exist. We didn't know the mechanism. We didn't understand anything about DNA at that point. We didn't really know what inside the human body was responsible for transmitting traits from one generation to the next. A lot of theories were floated around. Most of them were wrong. 
And there was this group of, of intellectuals who basically said, well, well, let's let's actually figure out how to do this to human beings, despite the fact that we don't really know how humans work, right? Pea plants are, are relatively simple. There, there's, there's a lot of things that, that what we would call today are, are single character traits. And, and so, so, you know, the basic idea is, is one gene, as, as we would say today, codes for like plant height. Um, whereas in humans, one gene doesn't do any such thing. And, and, and human height's actually coded for by, by a number of different genes. But we didn't know that in the 1910s and the 1920s. And so the basic idea became, well, let, let's, let's actually try to figure this out. Um, and, and so, so there were all sorts of interesting congresses and, and get togethers and, and conversations within the, um, the, the, sadly enough, I am going to say the scientific community, um, to actually talk about this. And, and then, then people decided that they were going to actually try to put it into practice. And the, the basic premise of putting it into practice is, remember I said there's two ways to do this. You could selectively breed human beings and you could selectively not breed other human beings. And, uh, and you know, selective breeding of humans with other humans wasn't something that, that was necessarily so easy for people to figure out and potentially control at that point in time. Although there were sort of various ways of you know, race-based and ethnicity-based and culture-based ways that people were already potentially doing that and thinking about that. But then, then the, the, the way that, that people thought might have been the easiest way to do it was simply say, okay, well, we won't, we, won't, um, we won't encourage and, in fact, we'll actively discourage certain populations from breeding. And that, that's where in the late 1910s and into the 1920s, the, the, the notion of sort of selective sterilization came about, the notion of saying, well, people with disabilities shouldn't breed to give rise to other people with disabilities. And, and so, so that, that was, that was, the, that was the, the sort of zeitgeist within the space in the 1920s. Let's keep in mind the whole thing was flat out discredited during World War II, right? A lot of the eugenics ideas had been had been sort of picked up and, and translated and and carried out in the context of what was going on in Europe and and Nazi Germany and um, and the concentration camps and, and the Holocaust, right? That was that was uh, that was very race based, but it was also very eugenics oriented and so by the end of world war ii the, the the whole concept had gotten thoroughly discredited given that people had the opportunity to to experience uh hear about uh learn about um all of the the various negative ways that eugenics could actually have been used and in fact had actually been used the interesting thing was that having the practice discredited is one thing. The 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 concept behind it, the, the sort of the the intellectual thought experiment behind it became one of those things that I would say didn't fully necessarily go away. We learned in the 1950s what was the unit of inheritance. It was DNA. We learned in the 1960s and the 1970s how DNA was replicated and how DNA was repaired. And we learned in the 1960s and 70s how you went from DNA to messenger RNA, from messenger RNA to protein, from protein to cells, from cells to human beings, right? And so, so because we started to, through the 60s and 70s, understand that, now we can actually talk about genetic engineering and we can talk about what's called recombinant DNA technology. Because we understand recombinant DNA technology, it means that we can do things. And, and the things that we can do would be, for example, instead of relying on pig pancreases to give us insulin, we can actually make insulin inside a vat now, 
right, for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And, and so all of this means that, that we now understand things about human biology that we never understood before. We understand things about plant and animal biology that we never understood before. Um, does that mean that, that we can actually manipulate those things? To some degree it does, but the thing is there's, there's actually, you know, there isn't any human clone that, that I can point to that says this is a human clone. Right. And so so that means that there isn't any kind of eugenics program as you would right. necessarily consider a eugenics program, because that's not something that, that's that's actively pursued within the research space. So one of the things that's become very commonplace today, especially with women choosing to have children later in life, is genetic testing for Down syndrome. But what's it gonna be? five years from now, 10 years from now, like what will we accept as legitimate testing? You know, because now people have the option to abort a Down syndrome baby, right? They do have the option to abort a Down syndrome baby, but every pregnant woman has the option to abort any fetus, Down syndrome or not Down syndrome, right? And, and so, so, I mean, there's, there's a value judgment that people will make with respect to what they feel they are able to do in the context of their child or their, their future child, right? And, and some people will feel like they are, they're willing to take on those kinds of risks, and other people will feel like they're not willing to take on those kinds of risks. The interesting thing is genetic testing is a tool, right? Genetic testing by itself is not morally bad. It's not morally good. Genetic technology is very cool. I've been a geneticist for a long time. Thank you, Dr. Sukai, for sharing the science for us today. So our third and final guest is Mark Workman. He's coming to us from Edmonton, Alberta. He's going to be talking about more about the social practice of eugenics, particularly in the province of Alberta. So, Mark, tell us the listeners a little bit about yourself. So, my name is Mark Workman. I was pursuing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Alberta. This was about 10 years ago, so in and around 2010, 2012. And as part of that work, I was involved in a project called Living Archives on Eugenics in Western Canada. And this was a large research project that involved multidisciplinary um, faculty within different universities and also the community. That was a big part of this project as well. We had survivors of eugenics that were active participants in the project. We had disability organizations that were actively involved in the project. And so this was something I spent a couple of years involved in um, back around that time. And as part of my uh, dissertation, my focus was going to be on um, eugenics and particularly looking at some of the contemporary practices that are um, connected in some ways to eugenics. I ended up not pursuing the PhD um, fully. I, I got a full-time job and I have tremendous admiration for anyone who can do full-time work and complete school. It was not uh, for me. So I, I started working around that time and withdrew from the program. And currently, I have just recently been appointed as the chief executive officer for the World Blind Union. So that's that's what I'm doing as a day job these days. We know that Alberta has a history of legislation, actually, for sterilization in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that meant to the disabled community at the time? I, I can definitely do that. I'm going to back up 
quickly, though, and just talk a little bit about what we mean um, by eugenics, because I think it's a word that people have heard, but may not know exactly what we're talking about. So so this term eugenics, it, it goes back a long ways. We're, we're talking about something that was coined around 140 years ago in the, in the 1880s by an individual named Francis Galton, who happened to be a cousin of, of Charles Darwin, the famous um, person who uh, came up with the theory of of natural selection and, and evolution. And what Francis Galton, what he meant by the term eugenics, the way he defined it was essentially the science of improving human stock. Now, we don't really talk that way anymore, but we can think of it as the science of improving human beings. And there are really two main ways that you could do, you, you could practice eugenics. One we call positive and the other we call negative. And that's not to say one is good and the other is bad. What we mean by positive is your goal is to increase the number of quote unquote good human beings that are being born or that are coming into the community. And with negative eugenics, your goal is to decrease the number of quote unquote bad human beings. And so positive, I'll give you, you know, some examples. They're kind of um, quaint when we think about it. So at at fairs, like community fairs, they used to have what they called fitter family contests, where you'd have a whole family come to the fair, and they would be kind of um, showing that they were the strongest or the most beautiful or whatever criteria they were using. You would judge a certain family as the fittest family. And that was a way of saying, like, these are the good human beings. We want more human beings like this. That's the positive side. The negative side is the one uh, that is a little more infamous um, and that we're a bit maybe more familiar with and the one we're going to spend more time on today. That's where you might try you try to decrease um, the number of, quote unquote, undesirable people. And so you could do that through institutionalization. You put people up in an institution so that they can't reproduce. Uh, you, you might use sterilization where you use medicine and biology to actually make it impossible for someone to reproduce. Or in some really extreme cases, as we saw in uh, Nazi Germany, you euthanize people who who you would feel are undesirable and who you don't want to be a part of the community. So I hope that context is helpful just to get a little bit of a background on what we mean by eugenics. When it comes to Alberta, way back in 1928, a law was passed that allowed the government to sterilize individuals for various reasons, and blindness was was one of those reasons, but it might also include epilepsy or other conditions that we um, that were considered to be hereditary. It also included all kinds of unusual things like alcoholism or um, promiscuity, um, things that we today would not really see as um, hereditary or or genetic. And a lot of the sterilization that would have occurred um, initially would have been quote unquote voluntary. I put voluntary in quotation marks because the choice was sometimes if you want to get out of this institution, then you'll submit to sterilization. And I'm not sure I'd really call that a free choice. Eventually, the government, though, actually did change the law so that they could do um, compulsory sterilization. So where you didn't um, choose to, to be sterilized. And so between 1928 and all the way up to 1972, which is when the law was actually repealed, not that long ago, we we're talking 50 years ago now, nearly 3,000 Albertans were sterilized. And it included a lot of 
people with disabilities, of course, but it also included women were disproportionately represented, immigrants were disproportionately represented, Catholics were disproportionately represented. So when we look back and we look at who was sterilized, uh, we have good reason to think that this was not um, just focused on genetics, that there were some negative attitudes about about different races, about women, about disability that were influencing um, those types of decisions. We're all really aware of how evolution plays a role in in social attitudes changing, scientific information changing. Like right now, we're in a time where a woman who's waited into her late 30s to have a family will probably be tested to see whether her child has Down syndrome. And I fear that the future will allow for more and more of that. And maybe in five years from now, there'll be other conditions that will just think, well, of course you don't want to have a Down syndrome child. You know, like who, what's next? I, I think that's a good question and a, an important concern that you're raising. And in the, you know, the scholarship that I was involved in, that was definitely a topic that we discussed. So there's actually um, one of the most well-known, well-regarded scholars on that subject of prenatal genetic testing and um, disability is actually a blind woman um, named Adrienne Ash. Um, she unfortunately passed away about nine years ago now, but um, while she was alive, she did a lot of work in this area and was considered one of the most important thinkers when it comes to these types of questions. And she talked about something called the uh, expressivist objection to prenatal genetic testing uh, followed by selective abortion. Because it's one thing if you just do the test so that you're better prepared, let's say, uh, for when um, the child arrives with the disability. You're, you're, but that's we know from looking at what happens after people see that their um, baby is going to be born with a disability. Um, take the ca case of Down syndrome. We're looking at 85, 90 plus percent um, will choose to terminate. So Adrian Ash said, you know, when you prenatally, when you test prenatally, and then you decide to selectively abort based on disability, you're expressing, hence the name expressive object objection, you're expressing a really negative attitude that's both um, hurtful, but also harmful for people with, with disabilities. And the thinking here is, once you've determined that this individual is going to have a disability, that's all you need to know. Um, and we, we, we generally call that type of, um, type of thing discrimination. I'm going to base my reaction to someone, my decision, um, whether, uh, on, whether someone is involved in, you know, covered by a policy or something like that, or allowed to eat in a restaurant. Let's give that example. I'm going to base it on race. I'm going to take this one characteristic and make a decision on it. Um, whether, you know, even though that there may be all kinds of other important factors, things that people with disabilities contribute, once you find out they have it, they're going to have a disability, that's all you need to know. And you decide we're not going to have a child with that condition. So she, like I say, did a lot of work in this area and really did try to raise concerns about this practice and to question how ethical it, it was. And I agree with you that this technology is improving such that conditions like the one I have, retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic condition, could be um, relatively easily determined prenatally 
and someone might decide I'm not really interested in having a child that's going to lose their sight. And so I'm not going to bring this child to, to term. And so I, I, I do think you're right to have some concerns about this particular practice and technology. Um, legislation may not be the best tool for this issue, right? There are issues with potentially it moving on to the, into the black market. So these tests that you can get um, are becoming cheaper and cheaper, and you may not actually need a hospital. So there is a, there is a question of like, can government really stop this through regulation or legislation? And I don't, I don't have the answer to it. But one thing that we can do that I think we could do a lot better at is helping present the whole picture when someone is faced with making what is, let's face it, it's a tremendously difficult choice. And so what scholars like Adrian Ash would say is, at the very minimum, we need to make sure that when they're being presented with information on the risks around the disability, that they're also being given information, accurate information on, on what it's like to actually have that disability. The thing is, the genetic counselors who are um, providing this information may not have a ton of experience with disability. They may not, you know, they're probably not in the community. Um, they may not have close friends, close family members, or they themselves probably don't have disabilities. And so you have to wonder how accurate is the picture that's being painted for, for parents when the individuals um, who are giving that information may themselves have their own biases, their own uh, misunderstandings about what it's truly like to live with disability. And one one final point is, let's say like let's say we actually agree that it is worse right now to be to have a disability. And statistically speaking, there's lots of evidence to suggest that it is. You're more likely to live in poverty. You're more likely to be unemployed. You're more likely to experience isolation, um, depression. We know that like right now in the world that we currently live in, it is harder to have a disability. And I don't think uh, many people would disagree with that. What I would say is, or question is, do we have to live in that world? Can we improve the situation so that people who are having children with Down syndrome, they actually get the support that they need um, to, to raise the child um, in the best way that they can? I, I think if you talk to a lot of Down's parents, they would say, we love our child and our child has been such a great contribution to the family and to the community. But they would also say, we could use so much more support from government, um, whether it's respite care to give people a little bit of break, whether it's easier access to health care, um, whether it's easier access to like behavioral type of supports to help uh, with education, all of these other things that, that are really social. Um, we could do a lot better of a job like when you step back and stop thinking about disability as just a personal tragedy, something bad that happens to an individual and that we should try to do whatever we can to prevent. And instead, you start looking at disability as like a group of people who are disadvantaged or discriminated against or excluded based on the way that society designs things like buildings, the environment, but also social programs the way we design our workplaces, these all can have dis like disproportionately negative impacts on certain kinds of people. And this is what made me go into advocacy. It's once I kind of started thinking about disability as a social issue rather than a medical or an individual issue, it's, there's a call to action there. But for me personally, I can do a lot when it comes to 
improving the built environment or reducing discrimination, um, getting laws passed that will make it easier for, for blind people. And so that's where I choose to spend uh, my energy, I think. You know, Hannah, it's very interesting to hear uh, the women discussion last episode and the science behind the concerns of eugenics and the social impacts that we experience from day to day. Yes, it is, David. I've certainly learned a lot from uh, Dr. Sukai about the difference between genetics, the science of genetics, and the practice of eugenics. Like I said, because I was part of the first episode, I do know a little bit about the experiencing that behavior. But it was really good to hear about it from Mark Workman's viewpoint and, uh, and from a scientific viewpoint. So in our next episode, we are going to be speaking with Peter Field, the team lead for the Pandora Project, and Dr. Jeffrey Riom from York University. And they're going to be reviewing a lot of archival documentation about the practice of eugenics in Canada in the past. So we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-based communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision.com at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.